Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. I'm your new host, Jeff Pardo, and I'm excited to be hosting the show. As we mentioned in our introductory podcast, we want to bring forward some of the stories of the most influential people in our business and dig into the issues our industry faces. To that end, I'm extremely happy to get the chance to introduce our first guest, a guy I've gotten to know pretty well over the last six years as a member of his board at Vapotherm, Joe Armin. For those of you that know Joe, he's a force of nature in the medtech world and really in any endeavor that he's involved in. The passion he brings to his work, the way he inspires the people around him, the deep thought he puts into every decision is truly impressive. He's enjoyed numerous successes throughout his career, including companies like Salient and Vapotherm, both of which we'll touch on today. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on. Jeff, I'm tickled pink to be here, and thank you very much. And just so you know, you, you're going to get exactly what you paid for, because i never done this before. So let's see how it goes. <laughs> Great. All right, we're going to dig into a lot of topics today. Uh, but first, to start with, I'm always fascinated by the personal stories of the people I get to know in our business, and in particular, how people get to where they are. We all know there's no cookie-cutter approaches to success. It happens in so many different ways. And in your case, it definitely wasn't a linear path into the world of med tech. So if we could step back in time just a little bit, uh, you grew up in Vermont. Can you tell us a little bit what life was like for the young Joe Army? Were you as uh, meek and shy as the guy we know today? Absolutely, Jeff. Absolutely. I grew up in, uh, they call it the Northeast Kingdom in uh, Northeastern Vermont. It's a fairly, uh, well, it's a very poor area. And you either worked on a farm or you were a logger or you, you know, worked for the state, but it's a pretty depressed area, but it's an absolutely beautiful area. I grew up on a small family farm, one of five kids. I'm right smack in the middle. Um, you know, we worked on that farm primarily for, uh, you know, putting food on the family's table. I worked on the neighbor's dairy farm for, you know, cash money. And then I worked in the woods as a logger and uh, every job I ever had, I guess, was about um, you got paid by how much you got done, not not really by the hour. So I've always been kind of drawn to that. I like that idea. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer in that education is the way out for everybody because it was certainly my path out. So it's a very interesting uh, neck of the woods to be from. Um, and it taught me an awful lot, particularly around the, like I mentioned, the, the value of, of uh, hard work and education is the key. And what was it like being a logger up in Vermont? Uh, t can you tell us a little bit about that? That sounds like pretty backbreaking work. Uh, it it is hard work. Everybody who does that for a living, uh, particularly then, it was it was uh, less uh, mechanization than perhaps there is today. You know, you earned every paycheck that you got. I'll tell you that much. We were cutting firewood. Uh, we would also cut pulp for the uh, sawmills in northern New England, and for the paper mills. So. It's very, very challenging work, and you know you better be paying attention every step of the way, or somebody's going to get hurt. Now, what in terms of how that shaped you and kind of your view on how your career developed? What were the things you took out of that early uh, childhood and your experience, uh, you know, growing up in logging and farming? What are the things that uh, you took out of that that you apply today? Um, well, I can tell you, looking back, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but, you know, I, anytime I think I'm having a bad day, I remember back what it was like when you're having a real bad day and, you know, either people got hurt or, you know, you were freezing or cold or just a lot of tough stuff going on. So that hard, hard physical labor is just, it, it really helps focus your mind on, you know, what is really hard and what isn't. But I, I swear to God, I think it comes down to a couple simple things about 
just hard work, don't quit, and focus on education and learning. You do those things and you're going to have a path, or at least I did. Yeah, that's so true. Now, at some point, you, you, you found your way outside of uh, Vermont and went to URI. You paid your way through URI, and you were a history major. And I, I was also a history major and remember coming out of school, wondering what I was going to do with a history degree. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, why did you choose history? You know, as you, you ended up in kind of a science-focused background, but how were some of those choices played into your development. I think before we get to that, we have to, you make it sound like it's a really nice, well-planned out career trajectory. <laughs> enough, and, you know, you and I both know that's not true. Um, right. you know, I, I wasn't really uh, very good at school in anything that I ever did in school. I graduated pretty close to the bottom in my high school and, uh, you know, didn't really like school and wasn't good at it. And, you know, I ended up going back into the woods until, you know, it was clear to me halfway through that summer that, you know, if I could find a way to get into college, I should do it. So I ended up going to a small state school in Vermont and ended up, you know, being invited not to return to that school after two years for a variety of reasons. And then spent the next year banging nails in Newport, Rhode Island and paying off all of my, you know, student bills to that point in time and really beginning to think about what kind of life do I want to have? and you know, working in the woods in northern Vermont is hard work, but I will tell you, humping bricks and sheetrock in Rhode Island in the wintertime, that's no box of chocolates either. And so I ended up really thinking it through. There was a guy I've been very lucky in my life is I've had a number of people show up at the exact right time to become a mentor to me. And this guy showed up, Dick Scholes and this other guy, Fred Dallinger, and they both started banging me over the head about, you know, you could do a lot more than this. Is this really what you want to do with your life? And, you know, Dick is the one who helped me figure out why a history major. And he said, look, you know, you want to be able to come out of college knowing how to read, write, and think. So go figure out how you could do that. And I always liked to read and I always loved history. And I understood that that would help me punch those three things. So I, never, I wasn't worried. I didn't think about it like a trade school, like, well, I've got to go learn to be, you know, X, Y, or Z. I just wanted to come out of there knowing how to read, write, and think. And I tell you, I think that's a pretty important foundation, and it's helped me a lot in my career. And from there, you know, I went and sold stocks for a living on Wall Street for, you know, three or four years and, you know, did okay at that and then ended up uh, getting accepted to business school. So I went to Wharton, and that's when I decided to go specialize. And you get an MBA in finance and marketing. That's more like the trade school thing. Yep. So it was not a linear path. You know, it was getting bounced out of schools. It was, you know, figuring out how to actually do well in school and that education really is the key. It is the way out for people who, you know, are looking at a long way up from where they sit today. Yeah, no, that's uh, so true and I uh, couldn't agree more. Now, coming out of Wharton, where did your career take you at that point? Um, you know, I... <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but I actually worked for the federal government between my first and second year at Wharton. I won a fellowship. And at that time, and this was in the late 80s, early 90s, we had another gigantic financial mess on our hands, and it was the savings and loan meltdown. And I'm sitting there thinking about what I want to do for my summer between first and second year, and I'm reading in the newspaper about this and about the formation of this Resolution Trust Corporation. And so I applied for the fellowship, but then you had to actually go get the job. And so I cold called that guy uh, who was named in that newspaper article every day for like six weeks. And finally, I got him on the phone. And, you know, after he was done screaming at me about, you know, I got better things to do than look at this big stack of pink messages from you. 
Um, they invited me down to DC and, you know, next thing I know, I got a job offer and I was working with distressed assets and I was really intrigued by the whole thing. I worked on some really cool projects. I made no money and I was taking the train from Philly to DC every day for, you know, that was like the slow bus, but, you know, I had a, like a three and a half hour commute in total. And then I ended up getting a, a condo. They gave me a condo in, in Georgetown. In the meantime, my wife was living up in West Philly, which you can imagine that was a box of chocolates. <laughs> so I really fell in love with this whole notion of distressed assets and thinking about, you know, when you're in a distressed asset situation, whoever can keep their act together and really think about what is the, what is the inherent value of those assets and how could you best deploy them? You know, you have a pretty good chance of getting something pretty cheap and then turning it into something pretty special. So that's where I ended up after business school. And I ended up at uh, Cooper's and Library and they had a big consulting business. And part of it was they had a restructuring and a kind of a turnaround business. And after coming out of e-school, you know, that's right where I went. I did that for the next six years. And you ended up uh, obviously in running venture back companies and companies that, um, you know, were probably at a different point in their evolution than the companies that you were working more on the distress side. But what are some of the lessons that you picked up uh, working with those distressed assets? And are there things that you learned there that you end up applying or become kind of part of your thought process as you as you work with companies that are maybe on the upswing of their uh, path? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And again, this is where I kept getting lucky and guys kept showing up in my life and, uh, you know, giving me advice and pointing me in the right direction. And I had another mentor in that practice, a guy named Bob Hoyt. And Bob was about as tough as nails and he was really old school. So I was, I had to go and kind of knock the door down a little bit to get him to teach me how to do what he did. But he really taught me from the get go that I didn't care what kind of business it was. Cash was the whole thing. Like if you don't have the cash, I don't care about whatever else you have going on in your company. And you better figure out how to make that business self-sustaining no matter what. And then the second thing he kept hammering into me was, is there really a business here? You know, there's a lot of things out there that are not businesses that are kind of interesting ideas. In med tech, I always equate it to, I ask guys, do you have a product or do you have a company? Because, you know, if you have a product and you try to finance that thing like it's a company, nobody's going to make any money. But if you have a company and you're financing it like a product, oh my God, are you going to make a big mistake? Because there's a huge opportunity and you're not going to go take advantage of it. So those are two really important lessons that I learned. And then the third one I learned kind of on my own there, which is it's almost always the management team. Every one of these things that I would go into, by and large, they were under certain circumstances, they were viable businesses. But a lot of times, you know, you hear every guy, you walk in the door and they go, ah, you know, you don't understand my business. My business is unique, blah, blah, blah. If I count the number of times that I heard that, I'd, it, it, like I have a nickel for every one of them, I'd have another tuna boat. So... It's almost always about the leadership of the organization and the approach that they take to building those companies. And that the more basic and the more simple you can make it, the easier it is for everybody to understand in your organization, the easier it is for it to be successful. But I, I, I did the turnaround thing for six years and I probably did, shoot, I bet you 30 different companies in, in a whole bunch of different industries. And I worked on the, you know, the, the unsecured creditor side. I worked on the lenders, uh, the secured lenders. But I really liked working for the management teams in fixing those businesses. It's your job is either to fix them or shoot them, right? There's nothing in between. And you just got to figure out if you have a viable company or not. And I don't think it's that different on these venture back things either. I think, you know, your ability to really step back and see, 
see that technology and then think about what it's going to take to turn that technology into a new standard of care, you know, that's going to tell you if you got a product or a company or if the dog won't hunt at all, you know? Yeah, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And at some point, you transitioned into med tech. So why, why med tech? Uh, and, you know, what had been your exposure up to that, up until that point uh, to the medical industry? I had done a bunch of turnarounds. I did some work for Hitachi Medical. They bought a bunch of stuff in the U.S. and, you know, it was kind of a train wreck and I went in and sorted some of that out. But I really didn't have any affinity for medical technology. I really didn't even understand it. But my mother was diagnosed at 63 with end-stage lung cancer. The tumor had wrapped all the way around her aorta. And my brother, my older brother, is wicked smart. And he, uh, he went out and found, this was just before the Internet got started, he found a clinical trial that was being run. And long story short, my mom lived for another 17 or 18 years. And, you know, she had this little yellow VW bug. She'd drive it to Florida and she saw a bunch of grandchildren be born. And she spent time in Egypt with the Great Pyramids. And, and that was a really formative thing for me, watching that happen. It, it, it felt tremendously hollow and empty what I was doing with my life and that I need to change it. And by that time, you know, Kim and I had two little kids and, you know, I was paying the mortgage and, and she was raising the family. And I'm thinking, I, I got to do something different. I've got to find a way to give back to this. You know, my brother could do it because he's got a PhD. And he's like I said, he's wicked smart. But I was just some guy from business school who, you know, knew how to do turnarounds. And I just started thinking, well, maybe I go to medical school. But, you know, with two little kids and a mortgage, you're like, eh, geez, you know, my wife was not jumping up and down going, hooray, let's do that. And so I came up with the idea, you know what, I'm going to go and figure out a way to give them better tools. And again, it's crazy how it happens in life. But a guy that I had done a bunch of consulting work for, he had run a, a, a drug testing business for Smith Klein. He called me up and said, I'm starting a medical device company. And he wanted to know if I'm interested. I'm like, I'm in. And he's like, you don't even want to know what it's about? And this guy, again, another guy is wicked smart. You know, this is a Harvard Business School guy. He's a McKinsey guy. He's been very successful in his career. And I'm like, John, I don't know anything about this. I know a lot about you. And if you think this is a great idea, then that's good enough for me and I'm going to go do it. So literally, that was the grand total due diligence I did on my first medical device startup. I'm signing my partner papers at this big consulting firm and I go home and tell my wife, hey, we're, we're quitting. We're leaving Philly. We're going to go move back to New England. And oh, by the way, I'm going to take a 50% pay cut and probably going to be working more hours. So, And I'm working for a startup. So we have no idea you know, how that's going to work out. But you know, that was the best decision I ever made in my life after asking my wife to marry me. So the whole thing worked out pretty good. And it's, a, it's one of those jobs, Jeff, where I would have done it for free. Every one of these things, I would have paid them to be able to do it because it's such a, cool, such a cool industry that we all work in. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and at Salient, you, you actually started as a CFO. And that's interesting to me because as CEO, you're so customer and patient focused. And I don't know a ton of CFOs who are innately as good at connecting with clinicians and patients as you are and at telling a story and putting forth a vision. Did, did, you, did you have that as CFO or were you, or were you learning that as CFO? What was, what was that like starting out as CFO of Salient? Well, actually, the first one that I started out in was this West End Biomedical, which we invented a technology called Acticoat, which is a silver antimicrobial uh, dressing that Smith & Nephew owns, and it, it's, they've turned that into one hell of a big business. So I'm three for three with these damn things, you know? But when I went over there, I was going mm -hmm. to be the CFO, and, and I had a buddy of mine who was a professor of accounting 
at Drexel University. And so my, my partner in crime here, he's the commercial guy and the, the president of the thing, and I'm the quote unquote finance guy. And I'm supposed to set up a chart of accounts. And I have no idea what a chart of accounts is, okay? So I call up my buddy who's the accounting professor at Drexel University. And I say, hey, Tom, what the hell is a chart of accounts and how do I build one? And he started screaming at me on the phone. He goes, how can you be the CFO and not what a chart of accounts is? That's the damnedest thing I ever heard. So I was not a particularly well-prepared for a traditional accounting-based CFO um, at, at West End. But I learned quick. And, you know, the biggest important thing I learned is I got to hire great people. And so I put somebody in there who was really good at all the stuff that I sucked at. And, you know, that turned out to be a recipe for success. And it allowed me to do some of the things that I was more, you know, I'm pretty good at supply chain, pretty good at setting up manufacturing and figuring out how to get, you know, new products built and get them out the door. But even then, Jeff, I didn't spend any time in the field with customers. I didn't know that's what you were supposed to do, right? I'd spent my whole life talking to customers, doing, uh, you know, turnarounds and things of that nature. But medical technology, they don't hand you a handbook and say, this is what you should do. So then, you know, I went to work for Jackie at, at, uh, at the time it was called Tissue Link. And again, now I had sort of a reasonably good idea about how to set up a chart of accounts. And the better thing is to go hire a really good accounting manager. But, you know, my job at the beginning was really around business planning and, and uh, raising money and making sure the operations were up and running and moving. And, you know, I, I, I spent some time with customers. But again, as CFO, I didn't that was not my job. I had to play the position that I was in. And so my job was talking to VCs and raising capital and planning the business and making damn sure I understood, you know, what was coming next. So it was really not until I became CEO that I decided this is the most important place to be. And I started spending half my time in the field with customers and, and our field team. What was that transition to CEO like? What were the biggest challenges and what, what are some of the things that you, you did to address the challenges? But I tell you that I had another mentor at that point in time step in. Again, I tell you, I've been like the luckiest guy on earth when, you know, these guys who have a lot of experience and knowledge and they just show up and start teaching you stuff. This guy named Jack Gill, who uh, was one of the one of the best VCs and just general business people and human being I've ever met. And Jack had financed a ton of medical device companies. And he said to me, you know, I've done, I don't know, X number and X was a really big number. He goes, I've only seen, you know, four CEOs who've gone the cycle, right? From startup all the way through to the end. And so you really better be thinking about right horse for the right course. And he used to bang that into my head, you know, make sure just because somebody's good at this phase of the business doesn't mean they're going to be good at that phase of the business. And, you know, I thought a lot about that and I've used that every step of the career. So the hardest thing is when you're going from a peer of a team to now you're running that team. And now you've got to figure out, are they the right people to take you to the next stage of, of growth? And man, I'll tell you what, nobody gives you a handbook on that one. And that is about as hard as they come, because these are people that you've sweated with, you've bled with, and you know, you're just now trying to figure out, you're trying to separate all those personal feelings and all that relationship and all that closeness with looking really hard and really, really clearly eyed about you know, for what's coming next, are they going to be able to excel at that role? What phase company do they do best in? And that, that was without doubt the hardest one because I ended up, you know, changing everybody out on that team, basically one at a time and flipping a team from, you know, early stage, white sheet of paper, hey, we got an idea to, 
later stage, let's go build 100 million in revenue. And it's a very different set of cats that it takes to go do one versus the other. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, as I've gotten to know you, I know how fiercely loyal you are to your team and how loyal your team is to you. So making those decisions, I can imagine, would be, you know, really tough. So how do you separate kind of the emotion of that? And, you know, in part, what makes people so successful is they're willing to run through brick walls uh, for you, just like you are for them. So how do you separate out that emotion from the business and, and make decisions that are maybe right in the long term? I can tell you, Jeff, that it's a hell of a lot easier today than it was then. Then, you know, you're waking up every morning, you're going to go puke in the shower and you're thinking about it. You're just, it's just eating you alive. But you know, if you don't do it, the greater good of the company is going to suffer. And another, another mentor of mine and is a guy named Tony Arnerich, and he's actually uh, one of our investors here and also at Salient. But he used to call it, you know, you got to fry one fish at a time and you got to focus on what they're good at. And you got to help them figure out what they're good at. And then we got to get them into that role. And once you change your mind from, I've got to, I've got to fire this guy to, I've got to help this guy figure out what they're really good at and how do we get them into the thing that they're going to be super successful and just really happy in everything they do. And Jeff, for me, that was a big part, being able to flip that switch and have Tony kind of walk me through that. And the other thing is having Tony there every day to talk to him about it. You have somebody that you know and trust deeply and you're, you're able to talk to them without any kind of any kind of garbage in your head and you can work through it. So I guess I guess I'm saying having a coach to work me through it, being smart enough to listen to my coach and then using them as you go through this thing and putting it into the right context. I'm not firing them from Vapotherm. I'm helping them figure out our salient. I'm helping them figure out what is the right role for them and get in there and get excited. And, you know, it's the damnedest thing when people start to do this, they really start to have fun and, and, and enjoy it. And know that this is the type of company, this is the stage of company that I'm really good at. And they're just going to keep doing it over and over and over again. But that, that was not easy. That, that was a hard thing to learn. But today, you know, it's much easier because it's all about the context. I know that I'm not firing them because I'm having a bad hair day or something. I'm moving them into a, a, a different role in another organization that fits them exactly right. Yeah, and that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and, you know, finding where people are going to be best suited uh, is, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, going to uh, improve the overall outcome for the, you know, or the business and for them personally. Another thing that strikes me about Salient is that the technology itself could have been used in many different applications. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Because one thing I think we see as venture capitalists is often you have cool technology that never really finds a home with the right uh, application. Um, how obvious was that at Salient and how much work needed to be done to really find the application that was where it added the most value and then maybe expand out from there? Oh, boy. So, so our whole deal was we were going to go build a set of ceiling forceps for lung surgery, right? Think about lung volume reduction surgery or something like that. We were going to use energy to do it. And we had just raised a, I don't know, a $20 million B round led by the guys from Brait, the South African VC fund. And um, we sent a team over to Hong Kong and they were doing cases over there. And we're all like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. We're all huddled around a cell phone or, or we didn't have them at that time, but around the Polycom. And we're listening to this guy, Roger, tell us from uh, Hong Kong how the device worked. And 
boy, oh boy, about half the patients, it worked like no one's business. It was just slicker than all get out. But on half of them, there was not enough collagen left in the patient's lungs because of the disease state, and the damn thing would not seal. And so you, they were still using them open procedures. So you could drop a set of uh, a stapler on there and a buttress, and you could you know close them up. So it wasn't a patient risk. But we're like, oh shoot, that cat. We do not have a product. And so I got to go visit with the new VCs six months or six weeks into it. I let them know, hey, you remember we were going to go along? We had hired the sales force. We'd done all this stuff. Hey, uh, you know that? Remember that we were going to go and launch and, you know, rep? Yeah, guess what? It's not working. We need a plan B. And uh, this guy, Mike McClurkin, who we were working with, had, had uh, insisted that we build this laparoscopic device that was just kind of a, think about it as a divining rod, you know, the water which we use it. Think about that. Like, it's not really good for anything in its own right, but it will find you. It'll give you the, the answer to what is the right device. And we took that device that Mike and I built on the side and we started using it. We realized that we could use this for solid organ resection, which was a very small market, but it had a very high clinical need. And we thought we were pretty confident that we could go and establish the clinical value of the technology. And then we'd have to go figure out where we could actually build a business around it. Cause you sure as hell couldn't build one around liver resections. And then we just kind of kept bumping along and, and continue to use it in different applications. And then we, we ran into a guy who was Jackie's next door neighbor, who was an orthopedic surgeon. He said, look, you need to figure out how to use this for orthopedics. And that's when we started working our way through that and building it. So I, I love these kind of companies that are platform technologies because they create a lot of optionality and optionality in my mind has huge value. When you get into the execution phase, though, optionality starts to create additional risk. Because if you don't have a team that's disciplined enough to pick a lane, understand why it will win, and then go and execute on it, you know, you're going to burn a lot of cash and you're not going to really make a company. So, you know, I would tell you, I think we probably got a little bit lucky there, but, you know, we were also making our own luck and listening as we went and we're able to kind of turn that whole situation from lemons to lemonade. Yeah, that's an amazing story, and I didn't appreciate the history of that. I mean, the other thing that I think is challenging in in those types of, as you begin the execution phase, is really, you know, your call point and knowing your call point. And can you talk a little bit about that? Because as a, the sales force, it's pretty tough to call on both the guy doing the liver resection and the guy doing the orthopedic uh, procedure. What do you think about that? How did that play into the decision making to to focus more on on maybe a, a core customer? I'm not sure, Jeff, uh, Jeff. I would tell you you're giving us way more credit than we deserve if you're telling us that we actually had that you know cogent kind of a thought pattern. Uh, I think we were we were pretty comfortable in having reps call in different parts of the hospital and different types of surgeons. We developed a pretty good training program internally. Woman named Susan Parker here up on the seacoast did a super job with that and helping teach all these different reps to be able to go call on a surgical oncologist, to call on, you know, advanced laparoscopic surgeons, and then to go and talk to, you know, total hip guys, total knee guys. And then over time we started doing the spine guys, neurospine, and then we went into brain surgery and doing uh, you know, tumor removal for the base of skulls. And that's a whole different call point. There's a lot of different call points that we had developed over time. But what we knew is we, our people had the best understanding in the world of how to use that technology and what the limitations of that technology were. And I don't care if you're an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon or a spine surgeon, I don't care. Surgery is going to be surgery where 
if you're cutting tissue, it's going to bleed, right? And that was, I love simple things like that. If it bleeds, we're going to stop it. And no surgeon likes to see bleeding, right? It makes the case more complicated. You, you start to see, you know, faster and faster breathing. Everybody's blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up. We like to give them devices, or we did at the time, that will allow them to control that case and do it in their own way. So for us in that situation, it wasn't as hard because you can literally train the reps on the anatomy and then they're just going to go talk to docs at scrub sinks. So we didn't, we didn't break it down that way. It wasn't that specialized. It was literally, they were total experts at the use of transcalation in the bedside in an OR. And ultimately you built that into a hundred million dollar revenue company. And then the decision was to sell to Medtronic. Knowing you, that must have been a tough decision, having built up the company the way it was. Can you take us through that a little bit? And, and also, what was that negotiation with Medtronic like? Yeah, I'm, I am the farmer who falls in love with his cows. I love the idea of building these things, and I hate the idea of selling them. And everybody on my board knows that, right? They got, everybody, in my mind, everybody's got to know what you're good at. And everybody's got to know what your blind spots are so they can pay attention to the blind spots, right? So, you know, we had tried to get the company public in 2008. And um, when we were tiny, we were small and losing all kind of money and our margins weren't that great. We were, you know, we were maybe 30 million bucks in revenue. And uh, I'll never forget it. Bear Stearns was our lead bank. This guy, Milton Shue, uh, was the guy we, reason why we did it, him and Joe Coles. And uh, we ended up uh, putting him in the upper left-hand corner of the damn book, of the damn S1, and we filed it. And uh, three days later, Bear Stearns didn't exist as an entity anymore. They were gone. And so, you know, that was a really tough time because, you know, we had a loan through, you know, GE Capital and our, uh, basically our, our um, insurance company was AIG. And it was like, you couldn't pick a bigger mess. And, you know, we're worried about, we're performing on our loan, but is GE going to start calling loans because their commercial paper program seized up? And then, you know, we find out about when you pull an S1, you got to go through 30 days of cooling off. Well, you know, again, I must have missed that class because we're like, oh, shoot the cat. It's the end of end of August in 2008. We waited the whole summer to see if things had settled down and it was clearly not settling down. And so, you know, we had to go through that 30 day quiet period. And then, you know, Bob DeSutter and the guys at Piper Jaffray came in and helped us. Uh, they, they actually led the round. We did a, a pretty, pretty good financing with a big step up in valuation. But I'll never forget it. I was walking off the river with Tony Arnerich, and the market was down 777 points, and we had wired money the day before, there at the end of September. And he said, boy, you're the luckiest son of a gun i ever seen. And I, I truly believe he's right. So that, that whole thing was kind of, I knew by 2008, if we didn't get that thing public then, I knew what we had. And I knew that if we didn't get it public then, I was never going to get it public. It was going to get sold because there's nobody in their right mind is going to let that asset get away from them. And another mentor that I had was the former CEO of Medtronic, a guy named Wynn Wallen. And he sat on our board along with Gary Ellis, who at the time was the CFO of Medtronic. And, you know, Gary had seen what we were building and knew what we were building. Obviously, Gary was never involved in, in the room in any kind of discussions we had about, about BD in the future. And when Wynn died, Wynn died in, uh, oh, she died in the fall of 2010. And, um, you know, January 2011, we're having a board meeting and everybody's having a big debate about what are we going to do with this business. 
And I really did not want to sell it. I just could see how to make this thing so big and make it into a category killer. But, you know, I understand how venture capital works and that, you know, at some point you got to get everybody a return. And so, you know, there were three big consolidators that, you know, I just went out and told them that, you know, I'm going to go take this thing public. And if you have any interest, now's the time to speak up. And three out of the four put in term sheets. And then we hired Bob DeSutter to go handle the sale. And Bob Bob really did an excellent job all the way through it. But you dragged me kicking and screaming to that one. I had zero interest in selling that company. And I got to tell you, Jeff, for the next two or three years, I couldn't drive by the plant. It just broke my heart. I just couldn't see it. It just It's very upsetting when you can see how big something's going to be. And it's, you know, unrolling in front of your eyes and, and you see how it's all unfolding and you've got all the pieces in place and you just see that shot down the middle of how to make it really big. And then, you know, somebody else is going to go do it. Medtronic did a super job with it. They kept my whole team together. My guys ran that thing for the next five or six years and they grew the hell out of it. Turned out to be a very, very successful acquisition for Medtronic. And, you know, turned out to be pretty good for all of our VCs too. They all made a bunch of money on that thing. Well, it's a good segue to Vapotherm, talking about it now having the chance to build something uh, really big. But I know when you first came into the company, you know, there was some work that needed to be done. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got introduced to Vapotherm? Uh, I guess it would be now starting before 2012 as a consultant. Uh, what did you see at that point and, and what made you realize this is a company you actually wanted to run? Boy, I tell you, it was a, it, my wife is like, you're retired now. So I spent the next seven months chasing tuna in the Gulf of Maine. And then uh, one of the guys who we made a bunch of money for at their, in their VC fund, the guys from Questmark called me up and said, could you come and take a look at this company because it's not growing like it should. And I went and did a little bit of consulting work for them. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting technology, but it was a gigantic mess. It was one where they had mistaken a company for a product and they never built it the way it should have been built. And, you know, you can't fault them that everybody's, you know, got their own way of doing this thing. But when I looked at it, you know, they had negative gross margins in the business and, you know, I'm no genius, but they taught me at Wharton, that was a bad thing and you can't scale that. Uh, there hadn't been a new product in, you know, five plus years and there was no clinical data and there was a distributor sales force and, you know, probably the worst product quality problem I've ever seen in my life in that company at that time. And, you know, there was only two or three weeks of cash left on the balance sheet. So, you know, it was probably about as messed up as you could get. But, you know, in traveling in the field, and I spent a lot of time in a lot of NICUs or in neonatal intensive care units and a lot of intensive care units around the country and watching clinicians treat patients. And, and it was a commodity humidification product out there. Now it's still out there by one of these big, you know, outside the U.S. companies who had kind of, kind of uh, uh, where the company had a big problem with a recall back in 2007, you know, like physio control type recall. They had stepped in and they'd kind of, you know, taken duct tape and bailing twine and made, a, made their own version of a high flow device and started calling it that and went in and, you know, for 15 months, the Vapotherm technology was not available in the market. And they went in and, and because we couldn't meet customer needs and we had invented the whole category, we couldn't meet the customer need. Well, they did. Well, their products were, you know, they cost half of what our technology does. So again, think about it. Products cost twice as much. They got a quality problem, the likes of which I've never seen. No clinical data, no new products, a distributor sales force that was, you know, very, very good at selling 
you know, what I would characterize as more like commodity products. Um, and I'm looking at this going, this is crazy. You know, I think you ought to just sell the damn thing and call it a day. Until I started watching clinicians use it, and I realized how crazy passionate the, the clinicians were who understood what this did. And I saw them blowing off the CO2 in these patients from the get-go. And, you know, in every one, of these, every one of these spaces, there's always some textbook that if you read that one book, you're going to get really smart on that whole area. And for respiratory, it's a book called Egan's. So I'm reading Egan's while I'm traveling around visiting hospitals, and I know that what I'm seeing is the definition of ventilation. So I'm asking him, you know, can you ventilate a patient with a cannula? And the answer is absolutely not. Hell no, you can only do it with a mask. So I knew two things then. One, I knew I was watching him ventilate patients with a cannula. And two, I knew that I had just touched on a really hot button that people were really committed to. You can't do this with anything other than a mask. So and then I started crawling through all the data because there was a lot of data in the company. And I, and I, love, I love getting my hands on that data and crunching it and realized how amazingly sticky that revenue was. That revenue was incredibly sticky. And I had come from a place where you had to have a sales rep in, you know, you didn't have to be in every case, but you had to be in a lot of cases per week in order to be at the top of mind. And in this one, you know, there was no, there was nobody in these cases. And these patients, they're, they're pulling this stuff like clockwork. Like I could set my watch to this thing. So that got me pretty excited. And then I started to think about what kind of clinical data I would need to develop, all the work that would need to be done to fix the quality problems and then to drive those margins into something that's, you know, even remotely appropriate for medical device company. And I decided this was it. And, and, and it really happened. I was in a NICU in New Jersey and this guy, Dr. Sun, and a respiratory therapist named Bob Terrell were standing there. And uh, I'm asking him, why do you use this? The thing breaks, it leaks, it, it's expensive. Why do you use it? And Dr. Sun looked at me and he goes, because there's nothing else like it in the world when it works. And then he started telling me stories. And then a bunch of nurses came over and they started telling me stories. And everybody's tearing up. And I walked outside and called Kim and said, I'm going back to work. Because this thing is just really, really special. And I need to do this or I don't think it's going to be here. So that's how come I ended up at Vapotherm. Then that first year, we all had to live in New Maryland because I hadn't decided yet what I was going to do with this company. So literally, I'd leave the house at 3.30 in the morning on a Monday and fly down to Baltimore and, you know, come back up on the last flight on Friday night. So you can imagine that made me very popular at our house. <laughs> I can't imagine. You know, one of the things you've done, which I think is um, really incredible, is the change the culture in a business where the, you know, the culture probably was given some of the quality issues the business was facing at the time. It probably was a pretty tough, uh, tough environment. So what what are some of the things you did to, to change the culture and, and uh, really kind of renew uh, the business? Well, first, I tried to change the culture of the existing people. And, you know, this was based on the eastern shore of Maryland, on Kent Island. It's a beautiful place. At that time, there was not a lot of medical technology in the state of Maryland. And they were all really good people. But, you know, I could not seem to really help people in the plant understand how unique the promise is that we make in medical technology to our customers. And that when they open up a box, it's going to work right every freaking time. And, you know, it's going to work on your daughter. It's going to work on your wife. It's going to work on your son. It's going to work on everybody. And I just, I could not get that through people's heads. I started bringing in 
respiratory therapists. I brought some patients in. I brought doctors in. I made them rip down all the artwork on the walls and start putting up pictures of patients. And I just, I could not get that through to people that it wasn't a matter of statistics and, you know, just explaining away product quality, that it was a promise that we made that we have to keep. And so I ultimately ended up deciding to close that plant and um, I actually moved basically everybody in the company out. Um, I kept some of the field folks, the, the clinical people in the field were outstanding. And they were dealing with this every single day. They were right on the front lines fighting that thing. Guys like John Walsh and Monica Boba, people like that, Matt Bohack. These are folks who were all over this. But, you know, ultimately, I couldn't change the culture where we were. And so I had to start again. So I moved the whole thing up to New Hampshire and started again. And it, it really is around building an organization around a set of principles. You know, I've, I've never seen a rule that I can't bend or twist or mutilate. But principles are different, right? And I did this at Salient. It was the same thing. And it was developing a set of guiding principles that we were going to run our business on. And I like principles for a couple of reasons. One, you cannot bend, twist, or mutilate a principle. They are what they are. It's kind of like why I believe accounting in the UK is better than in the United States. US is a rules-based system. UK is a, is a principles-based system. The second thing I liked about it was if everybody understands our principles, then you could drive decision-making all the way down to the absolute lowest level in the organization to the people right there on, and on the pointy end, and they make the call right now. I always thought we were going to be able to go faster and we were going to be able to meet customer needs much better, right? We just were very focused on principles. And then really everything comes from those set of principles, and we wrote them as a company. It took us, guys, I bet it took us three months to write those things. And it was a whole series of workshops and people were like, you know, the building's burning down and you got us all sitting together writing principles. Does that seem like the best use of time? And in my mind, you bet it was, because if we don't agree on these are the set of principles we're going to operate under, we can't go fast. So I call it go slow now to go fast later. So those principles drove a lot of everything. They're embedded in our performance assessments. They're embedded in the whole reward structure and recognition structure, they're embedded in everything that we do. So then from there, you start to build it out around um, a lot of visual cues, a lot of reminding people that they are the very best people in the medical technology industry. And then, you know, something I learned from Jackie and Jackie learned from Medtronic was, we, you know, we run a patient of the year celebration where we're bringing patients and their clinicians and their families into the plant every year and we want all of our people to see that we don't make truck tires you know we don't make cell phones we make the most advanced respiratory technology in the world and that's why we do work that matters and that is the that in my mind is the absolute critical piece of it is making sure people understand the why making sure they have a mission and that their job is a bigger thing than just putting bread on the table because they could do that anywhere yeah, that's really powerful, and it, and it's a technology that really lends itself when you see a baby hooked up to a precision flow, or you know, someone in the uh, emergency room that's uh, in respiratory distress. It's you know, these are stories that really lend themselves, I imagine, to uh, you know, to a pretty powerful uh, experience for 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 the employees. Well, you know, Jeff, my mom used this technology. When she ended up passing, she died at home. My sister helped make that happen. After 17 years and the lung cancer come back. But we ended up taking a precision flow and putting it on my mom. And this was a year after I'd started here. I knew that 
you know, that's how it was going to end up with her. And you just watch that technology used on your mother in her living room. And it's just, you, you will move heaven and earth. And you see it takes the fear away. You see that when you put, you try putting morphine under your mother's tongue because she's in a case of dyspnea and can't breathe. And you understand how powerful this technology is when you put it on her and it blows that CO2 off. So for me, it, it's very, very personal. That why is magical. This entire business, I always believe the United States military, people who work in hospitals, and then people who have medical devices, we have the best missions of anybody in the world for helping our customers, helping our, our talent, our people understand they do work that matters. I mean, these are so, so important. And if I was a venture capitalist and I'm thinking about bringing new people in, this is so much better than anything they could ever do because they're going to find ways to help fund and finance and grow. Technologies are going to save people's lives and improve how they get to die. And for me, that's magical. Yeah, I've always really believe that. It's like a triple win in our business, right? You get to help patients, love your work. You can make a decent living. So it's, uh, it's really a trifecta. So one of the other things I really like about what you do is the way you utilize your board and the access that also you give your board to your employees, whether it's the breakfast before the board meetings or the, the dinners. Can you talk a little bit about your thought process in utilizing a board? Because a, a lot of CEOs don't do it that well, but also in constructing a board and making sure you have people around the table that can really help you. Well, Wynn Wallen taught me a lot about that because Wynn was the CEO of Medtronic for, uh, he's the guy who brought Bill George in, and then he was the chairman of that board for a little while. He's about as good a teacher as you could possibly have. And he was walking me through it. He goes, look, I only had two rules. I never wanted to, I didn't care about any of this stuff. I had two rules and I've adopted those rules, as you know, Jeff, from our board, is that I, I want any board member to be able to talk to any person in my company, but there's two rules. One, whatever you say to that board member, you either have already said to my face or you'd be prepared to say to my face. That's number one. And number two, if you think there's something that I ought to know about, you ought to let me know. And I thought that those were two of the best rules that I've ever heard in my life. At the end of the day, you boil it down. That's what their job is, right? And I don't know how the hell they're going to do that job if they don't actually see what's going on in the business. And so for me, it was always about, I want those directors to build personal relationships with my entire team. And I want my team to know how to build a relationship with a board member because, you know, for them, it only helps grow and develop and build them, right? It's a good, everybody wins all the way around, but only... If everybody understands what those two rules are, and that as a CEO, I'm going to hold everybody to account for that. And if anybody starts to play any games, you know, I'm going to go put a bullet in them. And, you know, I've done that. So if you just make the rules really simple and really transparent, you know, then we do the breakfast thing that works every quarter. You know, the a board member is having breakfast with a different member of my team, right? We do that. We rotate it across. So everybody's constantly. So there's always a way to, for, the, for, the, for the board members to really get a different perspective, an unfiltered perspective that's not through a channel of communication that's mine about what's going on in the business. And also it's a way for them to be able to assess our talent. How am I doing in helping these people grow and build and become the best versions of themselves they can be? It just, it works all the way around. But it only works if board members remember they're board members and they're not, they're not members of management. And everybody understands that I want the meeting in the meeting, not before or after the meeting. And that I'm not going to have a whole lot of patience for any of that other kind of nonsense. 
Yep. No, I've, and it's worked uh, pretty effectively. And you also have put a lot of thought into how to construct the board. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because, uh, you know, you're, you are unique in as a CEO in your willingness to really proactively reach out to your board members on different topics. But you obviously put a lot of thought in who would go onto your board in order to, you know, get that sort of collaboration. Well, you know, I think it's like, if you could figure out how to have a doppelganger on the board for each one of the main and critical roles in your senior team, well, that's kind of that's kind of cool, right? And I start to think about them the same way I think about my team, and like, how do I build that board so it complements what I'm good at and what I'm bad at? How do I build that board so it complements my senior team of what what they're good at, what they're bad at? And then making sure that you're able to use those board members. I ask them, you know, ditch your board member card and, and pull out your teammate card on some of these things when we're going to go work a problem. Now, that's not to say that they're not in an oversight capacity because they absolutely are. I mean, that's their job as board members. But what I really want them to be able to do is to toggle back and forth between the two because they bring a tremendous amount of experience and expertise and, you know, if you can build that, that relationship with them where it is one based on trust and, you know, everybody's going to see everything and yet everybody's going to say what they think in the boardroom and you're going to have this really kind of open environment where it's all, all, all everything's got to be said is going to be said. In my mind, that's for me in, in my companies, that's the way that I like to do it. And for me, it works pretty good. I'm probably going to open myself up uh, to a little abuse here, but you've had a lot of interaction now with venture capitalists. What what are the things that make a good venture capitalist, and what are the things? What's the advice you would have for venture capitalists as we you know do our job? So, Jeff, you're really good at what you do. It's one of the reasons why you're on the board, right? You, I really like the experience and the mix that you bring, and I like the fact that you speak your mind in our boardroom. Even sometimes when I don't have my listening ears firmly attached and working correctly, you're not stopping. You're continuing to ask questions and poke around. So I would tell you, you know, people who speak their minds, for me, VCs in particular that speak their minds are really valuable. Independent thinking is also really valuable to me, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard these VCs, well, we need validation. It makes me want to throw up every time I hear that. I'm like, if it's validated, why the hell do I need you, right? You got to be able to do what it is that I'm doing, which is see over the horizon and figure out what could be and how are we going to make it? Not, Jesus, it's already been done. So independent thinkers, people who are really good at critical thinking and at thinking about risk and thinking about opportunity and when to go drop the hammer and when to go a little slow, those independent thinkers, I think, are really, really useful. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, there are VCs out there that that are just all about the validation and what is the herd doing and in my experience, usually whenever everybody's going to the right, I'm going to go to the left. And, you know, that's worked for me more than it hasn't. And then I would tell you that the ability to lean in, right? You know, the guys that are, you know, they're they're not really deeply engaged. They don't really know the business well. And they're just they're just kind of, you know, this is one of one of six companies and, and they're just not figuring out how to make it work. I really like guys who lean in and I like guys who understand that let's put the meeting in the meeting room. Let's be able to have the board meeting in the boardroom and let's be able to put it all on the table. So that whole political thing that would happen behind the scenes, I'm not a big fan of that. I would tell people that if you could say it in a boardroom, it's way better to actually say it in the boardroom. 
And the last thing is, I'm not crazy about VCs that focus all the time on an exit and they don't have enough focus on building the business. You know, if you build a great company, people are going to line up around the corner to create a liquidity event for you, right? But if you spend all your time thinking about a liquidity event, you're not building a great company. So my advice is focus on growing a great company. Yeah, that's a great advice. The other thing, you know, I think you pursue everything with a tremendous amount of energy and passion. And I know you, you, you have a lot of interests outside of uh, Vapotherm. Can you talk a little bit about that work-life balance? Because, you, you know, you, you go after it about as hard as anybody, but you still find time to do other things. You, do, you have a lot of charitable work. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that part of your life and, and blowing off steam outside of work? Um, well, I don't have a lot of steam to blow off, Jeff. I've gotten, like I said, I would have done this for free. <laughs> this is like the coolest thing I could ever do with my life, right? So I absolutely love what I'm doing. And, you know, my wife works for me now. We've been married for 30 years. And now she's working with me here in the business. I've been doing that for almost two years. I, I met her when we were working together when we were really young. And when I fell in love with her, I knew that she was really, really good at everything she did. So she raised our family and was basically a single mother. So now she works with me here, and, and I absolutely love it. A lot of people would look at that and go, you're out of your mind. Well, for me, it works beautifully. I love it. Um, I don't have a lot of steam to go blow off. I, I'm not a big believer in a work-life balance. I'm, I'm a big believer in a life. And sometimes my life, uh, yeah. my business part of my life is going to be, uh, takes a little more. And sometimes my family part of my life is going to take a little more. And sometimes my, my community part of my life is going to take a little more. And I got to be able to move around and shift on the board. And the same thing with our people. You know, it's probably more important for our people because I'm probably not a great example of that because I just, I don't operate that way. But we spend time talking about this a lot of time inside the company and making sure people taking their vacations. You know, if you don't use your vacation, we don't let you roll it over. You're going to lose it. And <laughs> the first time we did that, they're like, are you kidding me? I want you taking those vacations. I want you recharging those batteries. I want you reading and doing other things that are outside the office. So I don't know. I, I think that way too much has been put into the terminology of work-life balance. Like when you walk out of here, you can flip a switch. Or if you got a problem with one of your kids, you can walk out of the house and flip a switch. You can't do that. No human being can, and you shouldn't be expected to. Yeah. But you got to let people be able to move back and forth to what's most important. And, you know, we've got to create room in our company for that to happen. When our people need time for their community or for their families, boy, we better figure out a way to have teammates pick up the slack and make it happen. Because that, that's how you lose people in my mind. Well, that's a great perspective. And uh, lastly, and this has been a great conversation, as always, I learned a lot, and, and this is going to pay me to do this, but I've always wondered as a lifelong New Englander, grew up in Vermont, lives in New Hampshire, how did you become a Philadelphia Eagles fan? Oh, Jeff. I was, I was a Patriot fan my entire life growing up in the Northeast Kingdom. I lived and died by the Patriots every Sunday. I mean, it was like crazy stupid. And uh, they go to the Super Bowl in 1985, and they go play the Chicago Bears. And in the second half, they came out and they quit. And I'm like, you guys have got to be kidding me. You're, and they got absolutely blown out, right? They got crushed by the Bears. And I'm like, I have, I, I just, there's one thing in my life that I can't abide as a quitter. Anybody who wants to quit, I, I will die before I will quit. So I just stopped watching all football. I could care less. I'm like, the hell with you people. And I don't watch any football. 
And Kim and I moved to Philadelphia three years later, and we're going to grad school there. And uh, next thing I know, the guy who was the defensive coordinator for the Bears is now the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, this guy, Buddy Ryan. And Philadelphia is kind of a crazy football town. And everything that this guy does is about leave it on the field and just do not stop. He used to give out $100 bills to guys who could knock Troy Aikman out. Not, not knock him down, knock him out. And this was all over the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. The guy in Sean Payton in, in New Orleans got suspended for a year, but Buddy Ryan's in the paper giving, uh, you know, Dirty Waters a $100 bill for knocking him out. And I just fell in love with that ethos of leave it all on the field. And I became, I fell in love with football again, and I fell in love with the Eagles. And so, you know, by the time Bob Kraft had bought the team and they brought in Bill Belichick and all those guys, and they were, they were doing it right, but it was too late, you know. I was then in love with the Eagles, and there's nothing's going to shake it. So I'm a huge Red Sox fan, Celtics fan, Bruins fan, but boy, oh boy, you give me my Eagles every step of the way. So that's my story. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Joe, this has been terrific. It's a, a pleasure as always. And like I said, I learned so much just uh, having these discussions. And thank you, Joe. This, is, uh, this has been wonderful. Well, Jeff, appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much, and uh, good luck on the rest of your uh, interviews. Yeah, I think it's a good thing that you're doing, and I can't wait to hear some of them. Okay. Thank you, Joe.